Thanks, Jake. So go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. So um, if I haven't mentioned this before, I love music. Um, well, that sounds random, but Spotify sends out this calculator kind of counter timer that shows you how much music you listen to. Um, it's kind of dangerous. I guess it's better than having Netflix send out how much Netflix you watch. But um, Spotify sends out this timer and it says, here's how much music you've listened to. And apparently over the last 12 months, it's a little embarrassing. I've listened to, I wrote it down, 45,000 minutes of music, but it's, which it seems like a lot, but I did the math, 750 hours, okay, there's 365 days in a year, that's about two hours a day, you know, I just call that my commute, downtown, home, you know, it's not a ton of music, but probably the, the odd thing, maybe the odd thing is, I like classical music, okay, that's, I know that's strange, especially for a boy from Polk County, but I like, very, <laughs> very strange, <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Pat. I think that was Pat who said that. Thanks, Pat. Um, <laughs> but, I, I, you know, life can be hectic at times, can it not? It can be hectic. And I think, for me, classical music just kind of puts me, kind of brings me back to center, kind of lets me think, lets me meditate. And I'm always kind of reading articles, looking for new artists to listen to. And I remember about 10 years ago, I saw this article on this guy, this violinist named Joshua Bell. And he was a child prodigy. Some of you probably heard of him. He's a child prodigy. Um, but in 2007, he was, I think he was 39 years old, and he was playing at concert halls all over the world. And he would sell them all out. I mean, it was ridiculous. He'd be in Boston one night. He'd be in D.C. the next day. And, I mean, all the time. And so when he came to D.C. for a concert, the Washington Post pulled him aside, and they said, hey, we got a little experiment we want to try. They said, we want you to take the same music you're going to play, Two nights from now at the concert hall, we want you to go down to the local metro, the DC metro station, no, no camouflage, no nothing, just you, your violin, just like this, and we want you to play the exact same songs that you're going to play in two nights. Same songs. Sold out concert hall, people are playing $100, $200, $300 a ticket, we want you to play the exact same music. And so they did, he agreed. He said, all right, I'll do it. So January 12th, 2007, 7.51 in the morning, Joshua Bell, one of the fam- most famous violinists in the world, took his $3.5 million violin, which, by the way, was handcrafted in the 1700s. And he took this violin. He rode the short little cab ride. They interviewed him, and they said, well, why didn't you just walk? You had like three blocks from your hotel. He said, I have a $3.5 million violin. I didn't want anybody to take it. So he took like a little cab ride. And for 45 minutes, he played in the lobby. There's a picture of it. In the lobby of this D.C. metro station. A thousand people walked by him on their way to catch trains. 27 people threw money in the open case that he had open in front of him. 27 people for a grand total of $32. So he made $32. In the end, one person recognized him. Out of the thousand, one person recognized him. And a few months later, the Washington Post, they wrote an article kind of explaining what they had done. And, you know, everybody's, you know, just kind of mind blown that he actually played, especially those who know classical music and, you know, listen to that type of music. And I was reading the article and there was this quote in the article. And it obviously wasn't a Christian quote, but it was just the Washington Post just said, they said, we wanted to see... If in a banal setting, like an ordinary setting, 
at an inconvenient time if beauty would transcend. That's what they wanted to see. In a banal setting, an ordinary setting, at an inconvenient time, would beauty transcend. And it's, it's such a powerful statement as a follower of Christ, and I think even as a pastor, I read that, and I'm like, man, I think of the grace of God in our lives. I think of the beauty of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. And I can't help but wonder in my life, in your life, in the mundane settings of life, which let's face it, life can be pretty mundane. But if in the mundane settings, an inconvenient time, does the beauty of God still shine through? Does the beauty of God shine through your life in those type of settings? In the ordinary settings, in the mundane settings. Because let's face it, not much in your life happens the way you expect it. Life can be pretty inconvenient. Would you agree? Life can be, if you try to plan out the next year of your life, I promise you it's going to look nothing like what you planned out. I think James talks about it. He says, you plan, you want to go here for such and such a year and make money, you foolish man. Like, life just doesn't happen the way you want. It's mundane, it's inconvenient, it's frustrating. And in those moments, which we call life, does beauty transcend? Does the beauty of God shine through? Today, as we study uh, 1 Samuel, we continue our walk through 1 Samuel. We're introduced for the very first time to King David. The first time we read about King David, one of the most well-known characters in the entire Old Testament. And if you look at the life of David, he had ups... He had downs, good times, he had bad times, sinful times, times of repentance. But I think the one thing that you'll notice in David's life is the beauty of the Lord shine through. You can see it all throughout the Psalms as he wrote a good majority of those. As you recall from previous weeks in 1 Samuel, this is a transition in the life of the Israelites. I'm not going to give you a lot of background because we've done it week after week. But this is a transition in the life of the Israelites from what's called a theocracy where they were ruled by judges, think Samson, think Gideon, over to a monarchy where they're ruled by kings. That's, that's essentially what Samuel is. It's a transition where they're ruled by kings. And they said, they demanded a king. They said, we want a king. We're tired of being scared. We're tired of God sending judges at the last minute. And all of a sudden, Samson shows up because God raised up Samson. And that's nerve-wracking. We want a little more security. We want a king like all the other nations. That's what they told God. So he gave him a king. He gave him a king that was pleasing to their eyes. The Bible says tall, Saul was tall. He was handsome. He was pleasing to the eyes. Exactly what they wanted. All right, but the problem was, as we've seen the last few weeks, he was prideful. He lied. He stole. He disobeyed the Lord. And eventually he was removed. Okay, as we wrapped up last week, as Jake wrapped up last week, 1 Samuel 15, one of the last things we saw is we saw Samuel, or Samuel leaving the room, Saul reaching out, trying to grab his robe. You remember that? And he tore the robe, and Samuel says, the kingdom's going to be torn away just like that robe. Just like Saul, just like you reached up and grabbed and tore my robe, God's going to tear your kingdom away. So let's dive in. 1 Samuel 16. 
Verse one, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his, son, among his sons. So in these opening verses, you get this picture of Samuel, an old man at the time, and he's grieving, really he's grieving over the fact that King Saul has gone downhill, that the kingdom of King Saul has collapsed. And the word grieve, if you look at that original language, the word grieve, you know, grieve in our English language, I mean, you can grieve because the buck's lost, or you can grieve because the lightning are down O2, but this, this grieve is a very particular type of grieving. It says it's literally to mourn as if you're mourning for the dead. So that's what Samuel, that's what's happening in Samuel's mind right now. And, you know, if you, if you think about it, it's understandable. He's at the end of his life. He's mentored this. I mean, this is the first king. All right, think about that. You go all the way back to the Israelites. They're enslaved in Egypt. You have Moses. God raises up Moses. Moses leads them out. Then Joshua comes along. Joshua continues. Then they get into the promised land. And who steps up but the judges? And if you read the book of Judges, that's what's happening. God's raising up military leaders to defend them continually. And then you get to Samuel and they're like, oh, we want a king. So Samuel puts this king in place and he thought this was going to kind of be, all right, this guy's going to take him for a while. I, I can retire. I can quit doing what I'm doing. And then Saul crashed and burned. So the Lord looks at him in verse one and says, Samuel, let's go. You've grieved, this is what he says, you've grieved too long. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. The Lord says, you've grieved long enough. It's time for a new beginning. All right, let's go. I want you to go to the town of Bethlehem and I'm going to take you to this guy named Jesse and one of his sons is going to be the next king. One of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king. Verse 2, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So obviously anointing a new king, while the current king is still in power, is... Not always the wisest move. And Samuel understands this. He's like, okay, Saul's going to kill me if I do this. Like, how, how am I going to go anoint this king? And the Lord says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Bethlehem. You're going to offer a sacrifice. So they really did offer a sacrifice. We're not lying. But then the point was that Jesse and all of his sons would come to the sacrifice. And that they could, the Lord would show him who was going to be. So verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peacefully? Now, when I was first reading through this, the elders of the city came to meet him trembling. You know, it's kind of weird. You know, a prophet of the Lord comes in, but I don't remember what happened last week. At the very end of the chapter, remember King Agag came and stood before Saul and stood before Samuel? And it says that Samuel took a sword and did what? Hewed, I think was the word, but hacked him to pieces was the actual definition of what happened. So now they don't have social media, but obviously they have some kind of rumor mill that has made its way to Bethlehem because Samuel shows up in Bethlehem and everybody's panicked. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peacefully? And he says, peacefully, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, essentially clean yourselves up and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, Samuel looked, or he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
So they come in to the sacrifice. Jesse's there. All of his sons are there. And the first son walks out. Samuel looks at him and says, Surely the Lord's anointed is right here. Like, we need to go no further. Samuel's, or Saul, excuse me, Jesse's firstborn is right here. He clearly fits the bill. Now, it's, I think it's hard for us to understand why, why they're looking for these types of kings, but you have to understand they're a warring society. We don't always look to our leaders and think they have to be built a certain way, have a certain amount of muscle mass, be, you know, however tall. I mean, if, but if I was part of the society and I had a say in who would be my king in a warring society that tended to fight a lot, I would want that person to be 6'8", 300 pounds. I mean, would you agree? If you want somebody to lead you and somebody who's going to be able to defend you. So that's, this is the mindset a lot of these folks are in. They're looking for that type of king. And even Samuel, you know, look at us and how confident he is. Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Like you'd wonder maybe if he didn't learn that lesson from Saul, but apparently he didn't. He's good looking. He's tall. He's strong. Surely this is the guy. So let me ask you a question before we go any further. Do you think when the Lord is looking down from heaven, when he is choosing who is he is going to use for ministry, who is going to be utilized in a certain way for his kingdom, do you think he cares what they look like? Do you think he cares if they're tall, well-built, or handsome? Do you think that even factors? Do you think that's even on the scale of recognition for the Lord? Okay, all right, I need somebody to go here. I'm going to plant a church in Tampa, Florida. All right, where's the tallest guy in Tampa? I mean, do you think, I mean, no. It sounds silly to think that the Lord would care, but we care. Because all we can see is the physical. Like that to us is, that's what's comforting to us. It's what we can see. But the Lord, he doesn't see the physical, he sees the heart. And the funny thing is we spend so much time, I say we like I do, but we spend so much time on our physical appearances like working out and lifting weights and we do so, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, trust me. That's, that's good, Mason. It's good. <laughs> um, it's good to do that. But here's, here's the question I would have. Here's the question I would have. Do we, and this is for everybody, not just Mason, all right? Do we spend just as much time on our hearts as we do our physical appearances? Do we spend just as much time worrying about what's filtering into our minds as we do how we look? You know, the Lord did not look down this week. Jake went and got a haircut. The Lord did not look down this week and be like, Jake, great haircut. I mean, he needed a haircut, but the Lord does not care. He really does not care. My, my challenge, my encouragement to you is to spend time Worrying about your spiritual well-being. Worrying about your heart. Man, what is my heart focused on these days? Have I drifted? Have I, am, I, am I consumed with something different now? What is my mind thinking about? In the mundane, in the inconvenient, what is my mind focused on? Has it drifted? Is it still focused on the Lord? And I, I would encourage you to do that. If you look at the, the crazy thing is, if you look at the beginning, actually, let's read this first verse, verse 7. I love the way that verse 7 is laid out because there's a word in here that the author uses over and over and over and he's trying to make the same point. Here's what he says, verse, or verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see that? You see the repetition? It's actually the same word in the Hebrew that they're using over and over and over and over. And if you go back to verse 1, the crazy thing is if you go back to verse 1, it's the same word as provided. So it's written in Hebrew, and the translators, kind of given the context of the verse, they'll translate it, hey, this is great to use the word provided here, but they're going off that original ra'ah, that's your Hebrew word for the day. That's the word provided. So really, you could read this verse and say, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided, I have seen, I have looked and found someone that I like his heart. I have found someone whose heart is right. I see his heart, and he will be the next king. Now, think about that. Stop and put yourself in those shoes. The Lord is looking throughout all of Israel for the next king. All of Israel. And he's not looking at outward appearances. He's not looking for tall people or short people or well-fit people, people who work out. He's looking at hearts. He's looking, he's like... Jesse in Bethlehem, there's a guy named Jesse, the grandson of Ruth. Remember Ruth? The grandson of Ruth. Right? And he's got a son who's young. He's really young right now, but his son is after my own heart. And Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem and I want you to anoint him. It's like, if you think about that, the Lord's looking at hearts. It's, I mean, it's just so, it's so impactful to think about. Verse, verse 8, then got Jesse called Abinadab, so the, the parade of sons continues. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is out keeping the sheep. He's not even here. I wouldn't even bring him. Why would you even think this, that he would be worthy of being the king? He's out, he's out in the fields dealing with the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. All right, probably means we won't sit down to eat. I don't know that they had to stand the whole time. Maybe they did. But he says, we will not sit down till they get here. So Jesse's sons, one by one, you know, like a beauty contest. One by one. I mean, literally, that's, I mean... In the world's eyes, that's what it was. They were looking for tall. They were looking for, I mean, that's what they were looking for. Beauty contests coming out one by one and he rejects them all. And so Samuel, who knows the Lord doesn't lie and knows the Lord said one of these sons is going to be the next king. He looks at Jesse and asks the obvious question, do you got more sons? Because the Lord doesn't want any of these. And he goes, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And that, that Hebrew word for youngest, it actually literally means tiniest, smallest, youngest. I mean, that's the same synonyms. It's kind of that. He's, he's, he's the youngest. He's the tiniest. He's the smallest. Most scholars think David was around 13. 13 to 15. I mean, the, the age is not really important, but most scholars think that's how old David's, David was at this time. So picture the contrast. 13-year-old. These other sons were all warriors, probably fighting in battle. And then you've got David. I mean, he is, he's, in, in contrast, he's boyish. He's weak. Okay, so much so that his father didn't even invite him to the ceremony. 
His father was like, there's absolutely no way that he is going to be the next king. He's out keeping sheep. I mean, shepherds was reserved for outcasts. Being a shepherd was servants. Nobody did that, except maybe the youngest son. Send him out there. All right, verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Now, when I first read that, he was ruddy. I didn't know what ruddy meant, but when I first read it, he is ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. I kind of thought it, I expected him to, for it to say, and he was ugly. And, you know, because you're looking at the contrast of they're all looking at the outer appearances. But when you, again, you have to study pretty far down to get some of this. But when you're studying this, basically what the scholars are saying and the translators are saying, it's almost like my four-month-old back there. You're like, oh, she's so cute. That's, that's the picture. This is a childish beauty here. He had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The, the author is almost repointing out the fact that he's a cute little kid, not a warrior. And that's the next king of Israel. Now, it doesn't mean that he won't go on to be a warrior one day. But in this moment, no one in the room sees what the Lord sees. No one. So what does the Lord see? What's the Lord see in me? What's the Lord see in you? When he's looking throughout all of Florida, he's looking at hearts because he doesn't care about the outward appearance. What does, what does he see? What does he want to see? You know, in one of Jesus' very first sermons when he came to earth, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. And he starts the sermon with these things called the Beatitudes. Maybe you've heard of them. But here's what he says. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not blessed are the poor, but blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's kind of hard to summarize those into one word, but if if I could try, I'd say the overarching theme is humility. It's understanding positionally where God is and where you are. David knew that whatever he did, he had to seek God. He knew that whatever step he made, he had to seek God. God was in control positionally. He was humble, humble in spirit. All right, Matthew eleven twenty eight twenty nine 29 says, come to me, all you who are weary. This is Jesus again speaking. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, my teaching upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentle and humble in heart. So verse 13, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, Picture the scene. I always like to like put myself inside the scene. Picture the scene. All of David's older brothers are probably just staring at him. Like, what in the world just happened? Disbelief. I'm sure David was totally baffled by what had taken place. Keep in mind, he wasn't there for the fanfare when Samuel arrived. He was taking care of the sheep. 
He wasn't in, I mean, he wasn't in there. He wasn't in the sacrifice. He wasn't there for the parade of his brothers walking through in front of Samuel. He was rushed in at the last moment. Go get him. We will not sit down until he gets here. So he was probably rushed in. He still could have been dirty as a shepherd would be from being in the fields, pulling sheep out of every which way. I mean, there's no telling. And before he can answer, you know, any questions happen, he just kind of gets probably pushed in front of Samuel. Samuel anoints him and is like, you're the next king. And then it says at the end, Samuel got up and went to Ramah. Like, you know, if you're sitting in David's shoes, you're kind of just probably processing what just took place. Like, what just happened? You know, if it were me, I'd probably be looking around. All right, I'm the next king. Where's the royal entourage? Like, you know, I I probably, the sheep days are done. You know, I'm not going back out to the fields at all. Like, let's, where's this, you know, where's my new estate? Let me go find this new estate that I'm going to be living at because I'm now the king of Israel. Like, this is great. But it never comes. He won't become king for 17 years at 30. So if he was 15, then obviously do the math. 15 years. We don't know exactly how old he was. Even if it was five years. That's a long time from the point where you've been anointed king to when you actually become king. And in that moment, he's sent back out to the fields and his life returns to monotony, ordinary Instead of going to some training program for new kings, (laughs) assuming they have those, he goes back to tending sheep. In the years that follow, this is what we'll see. We'll see him shepherding in the pasture. We'll see him serving a mentally deteriorating Paul, I mean Saul. We'll see him literally running for his life, hiding in caves and mountains. But here's the important thing. Through all of it, trusting God. I don't know about you, but that is a difficult place to be when you feel like God has promised something, there's something that's going to happen, and 17 years go by, and you can do nothing but trust. I know God has a plan. I know he has a plan. I don't know what that plan is, but I'm going to trust that he is in control. Talk about an ordinary setting at an inconvenient time. But God used, the cool thing is God used the pasture. God used the caves that he had to hide in to strengthen David. To prepare him for what he had in store. If you think about David, you think about his life. This is not all in this chapter. But he developed, I think, some of the most vital skills of his life in the pasture. And in the caves. It wasn't in the palace. It was in the pasture. It was in the caves. He used a slingshot to kill David. We're going to study that in two weeks. Probably learned to use the slingshot in the pasture. Right? Trying to fight off wild animals that were coming and getting the sheep. He grew in courage. It says fending off lions, fending off bears, trying to protect them from the sheep. He learned humility probably in the pasture. Anybody who was a shepherd had to be humble because shepherds were despised. Probably learned humility. He writes most of the book of Psalms while he's sitting in pastures and sitting in caves. You can read, if you read the Psalms, you see the threads of a shepherd and the threads of somebody on the run all through the Psalms. Every time you read it, you can hear these, these points. And the truth is, some of the best lessons in life happen while you're in the pasture. 
if you're honest with yourself, some of the best lessons, some of the best moments, some of the best learning experiences in your life will happen while you're in the pasture. While you're in the mundane, while you're in the monotony, while you're in the inconvenient. Life actually happens in the pasture. Like when we look around, you see social media, you're you're seeing the best of the best of the best of everybody else. Their life's just as mundane. They go through the same toils, the same struggles. Life is inconvenient. You know, Satan throws curveballs. Life throws curveballs. I mean, it happens. But David is going through these. He's growing from these experiences. Think about it. Think about this. David went through what he went through so that you could be refreshed. When you read the Psalms, you are encouraged by what David went through and how he persevered and how he overcame struggles and overcame, you know, danger and how he fought these battles and he wrote all these beautiful Psalms. You are encouraged because of his life. You are encouraged. We are encouraged because the Lord said, David, write these Psalms. The Spirit empowered him. The Spirit came on him in that moment and empowered him to write. And it's it's crazy to think about. And some of you, some of us, are in the caves right now. Some of us are hiding from enemies. Some of us are figuratively in the pasture right now. And guess what? God's there. God is in the pasture. He's building you. He's molding you. He's encouraging you. He's forming you. He's shaping you into what he wants you to be. You look around and say, what the heck? I'm in the pasture. This is awful. Look what everybody else is doing. This is horrible. And God said, trust me. I'm making you into who I want you to be. You know, I look at my life. Courtney and I are kind of in this stage right now where I'd say life is interesting. (laughs) You know, I mean, to say the least, I mean, it's great. But we've got three kids under six. One's in therapy multiple times a week. None of them sleep well. I think we were both up at four o'clock this morning on. All right, none of them sleep well. We got one in diapers. They fight all the time. You know, it's sad when sometimes your commute to work from Lutz where I live to downtown Tampa where I work is the quietest time of the day, even though it's the mind-numbing traffic. You know, it's like, you know, it's like probably where all my Spotify hours come from is right there during that commute. But, um, and I, you know, here's the thing. When I look at my life, I can't help but put myself in Courtney's shoes. I travel a lot for work. I'm, I'm gone. I'm in hotels. You know, she's, she's in the mix. She's in the pasture. Kids crying, kids screaming, kids doing this, diapers changing. I mean, trying to make, I mean, just, and I, I can't even, I, I've told her many times, I would never in a million years want to trade spots with you. <laughs> like, it's just, but guess what? God is good, and God sustains no matter what your pasture looks like. If it's just because life is hectic, maybe it's sickness, maybe it's disease, maybe it's the loss of a loved one. God is there. Just like he was for David. Wrapping his arms around you. You been there? Pastures, feeling undervalued, underappreciated, you know, working a job that you hate, unnoticed by everyone around you, knowing that God can use you in a mighty way, but just, you don't know when that's going to happen. 
I've got good news. In the ordinary settings, at inconvenient times, beauty will transcend. It always does. God is working whether you see it or not. All right, he's preparing you for those moments where you leave the pasture. But think about David. David's life was so ordinary, we sometimes miss it. I mean, the, the, created the palace from 30 to 70 when he died. You know, that probably wasn't too ordinary. But the beginning stages of his life were ordinary. When he fought Goliath, we'll read about in two weeks, when he fought Goliath, he was in the shepherd. His dad pulled him off the sheep, out of the field, and said, hey, go take these sack lunches to your brothers. David was not a warrior. He did not show up to fight Goliath because he was a warrior. He showed up with sack lunches. Came off the field from an ordinary life and his dad says, go take these lunches to your brothers who are fighting the war right now. So he takes the sack lunches, he goes to his brothers, and he goes, what's that big guy doing? Right? And God says, I want you to go kill Goliath. And he goes and kills Goliath. And then guess what? He goes back to the pasture. Like life is, life always seems to work that way. It's like one small step of obedience and one small step of faith and one small step of trusting God after another. That's what it is. And all of a sudden God says, I want you to do this. You deviate from the mundane. You go do what God wants you to do. You're obedient. And a lot of times you go back to the mundane. It's one small step of faith, one small step of obedience. Raising kids, going to work, doing the same thing over and over and over. And it seems mundane. You're like, Lord, get me out of this. And God says, I'm there with you. I want you to find joy and peace and rest in me, regardless of what your life looks like. If it's sickness, if it's disease, if it's a boring job, if it's a long commute, doesn't matter. God says, find peace and joy in me. Romans 8, look above your circumstances. I look above the sufferings of this present world. You're looking above those circumstances. All right, I'm going to finish up the chapter and read all these verses at one time, and then we're going to close. Verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the key and the Lord is with him. Therefore, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey, laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat, and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. So not only does God withdraw his spirit from Saul, put it on David, but he sends another spirit to Saul. And scholars have debated for a long time as to what this spirit was. We're not going to solve that today. All right, we're not sure if it was a spirit of discontent, if it was an angel of the Lord that periodically afflicted him. Maybe it was a demon of some kind. We don't know. But whatever it was, it's kind of clear that the Lord was disciplining Saul. He would send this spirit to Saul. And the thing I like, if you kind of step back and look at this passage, is you get this picture, on the one hand, of unhappiness and rage and frustration in Saul. And then on the other hand, the one thing that calms the storm. 
And the one thing that calms the storm is a spirit-filled individual. It's the spirit of God. God. Saul is looking for something to help him with his rage. And his man, verse 18, says, I know someone who's skillful and plain, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and most importantly, and the Lord is with him. You know, people are beginning to recognize, hey, David, he's got, he's got the spirit of God in him. You ever been around somebody who's, it's evident, the Holy Spirit's in them? I mean, as believers, the Holy Spirit's in all of us who profess faith in Jesus, but there's just some people, I think, where it's more evident. You're just, every time you're around them, you're just like, man, you know, I mean, I, I would hope it's true with all of us, but, you know, you just get the sense of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And um, last Sunday after church, we went to Lakeland to celebrate my granddad's 95th birthday. It's my granddad. Um, that picture was taken at the party last week. Um, and if there's one person in my life who's always been this constant example of what it looks like to be spirit-filled, it's that man right there. You know, no matter what life throws his way. I mean, he's getting ups, he's had downs, they lost a young child, an infant child at one point. I mean, I look and go through his life by worldly standards, never wealthy. Never had a big house. Never spoke to thousands in an arena. He was a telephone man for Illinois Bell. Started there as a young man, retired there. So he did his whole life. One foot in front of the other. God gave him opportunities. God gave him opportunities. Like King David, he was faithful and he was obedient. Lived a spirit-filled life. Showed everyone around him what the fruit of the spirit looked like. There are countless people in heaven. No, don't, don't lose this. There are countless people in heaven today because of the monotony of his life. What he did. So some of us were in the monotony. Me. I'm like, Lord, this is horrible. Get me out of this right now. This is so boring. Life needs to pick up a little bit. Where are we going on vacation next? What are we doing? And sometimes the Lord's just like, chill. Focus on me. Rest in me. And he learned, my grandfather learned to do that. Ordinary settings, inconvenient times. He showed the world who Jesus was. And I'll stop by his assisted living facility every now and then. And we'll chat about life. We'll talk about the good times. We'll talk about the bad times. And I was there a few weeks ago. And I went to pray with him right as we left and I was like do you want to pray together before I leave he's like yeah but I'm not going to be able to do it I was like why he goes I'm just not going to be able to get through it every time he prays he cries every single time because all he's doing is thinking and resting in how good God is and so I was like, all right, I'll pray for you. And then, of course, I'm crying. And, you know, we're just like, you know, he's crying, I'm crying. It's just like, this is a, a mess. But it's a mess because of how good God is. So how about you? For those of you who would consider yourselves followers of Christ, does the world see you, see him in you? And I don't, I don't mean this in a bad way. I, but trust me, there are times in my life where I know the world does not see Christ in me. But it doesn't mean it has to be like that all the time. Does the world see him? Are people drawn to you because of Christ? Man, I don't know what it is, but I just like being around him or her. He's got this sense about him, this spirit about him. And then for those of you who have never placed your faith in Jesus... Why not do it today? You know, the crazy thing is before I gave my life 
to the Lord. The mundane, the ordinary, the boring, the inconvenient, they all got me all out of whack. And I think on the other side of a relationship with Jesus, I realize, man, just use those moments to rest in him. Use those moments to appreciate what happens in the good moments and even appreciate what happens in the bad moments. You know, you have the same Holy Spirit on you if you're a follower of Christ that David had on him. Same Spirit of God is in you that's in him. You know, and use the pastures as a chance to reflect, to grow. Use tragedies as a chance to kind of look above your sufferings and look at heaven. Think of his goodness. Use the battles to realize, I don't got this anyway. That's him. He's in control. He knows who's going to win. Probably 900 years after David died, there was another person who was anointed, person who was born in Bethlehem. His name was Jesus. And he was pretty ordinary for the first 30 years of his life. He was a carpenter, probably a lot of pastures. He just was a blue-collar guy. Wasn't even a rabbi. And when he officially does come on the scene, he kind of comes in, he goes, John the Baptist baptizes him and says, the Spirit of the Lord anointed him, came on him like a dove. And you think he's going to go march on Jerusalem, but what does he do? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he fasts and he prays. And then the devil tempts him, and it's like, I would have done something, but I'm not him. Right? I mean, this is... He, was, he lived what seemed to be an ordinary life, but he was the most extraordinary person that ever lived. He was sinless. He raised the dead. He walked on water. He healed thousands and thousands of people, all with the primary goal of pointing people to the Father. We're going to take communion here. The guys are going to hand out the, the bread and the grape juice. And here's what I want you to do. As you're, as you're taking communion. We do this once every six weeks. And we do it as a time, of, you know, just randomly or divinely laying it on Palm Sunday. You know, that same Jesus who came as a child in the stable 33-ish years later, he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, this day. He came in in preparation for his crucifixion. And he gathered in the upper room with his disciples and he said, I want you to do this. Every time you take this, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. All right, I want you to spend just a few minutes reflecting on the Lord, reflecting on his goodness, reflecting on who he is, who he is in the pastures of life, who he is in the great times of life, who he is in the bad times of life. And remember that he always is who he is. He never changes. So after you get your bread and your, your grape juice, take a few minutes and then we'll close out the service.
in the upper room right before the cross. And Jesus would gather with these 11 guys at this point that he had spent so much time with over the prior three years. And they were doing Passover. For believers, it's, we, call the, we call this communion, where you're just remembering what Christ did on the cross. And he looks at them and he says, this bread, he broke the bread, he said, this bread is a picture of my body, which is broken for you. And this, this wine, this juice, is a picture of the blood that I'm going to shed on the cross. Paul tells the church at Corinth, he says, he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup is a new covenant in my blood. And as often as you drink it, remember me. When life is tough, you're in the pasture, remember me. When life is mundane, when life is inconvenient, Remember the beauty of who Christ is. When tragedy strikes, remember him. And more importantly, remember the cross. Let's partake. I'm going to close this out with just by reading Psalm 23. I want you to picture David writing this from the pasture. I want you to just picture the the idea of what this is. And I want you to think about how good God is. I want you just to think about what he's done in your life, what he's done in my life. Just remember how good he is. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for a passage like 1 Samuel 16. Thank you for just who you are, the goodness of who you are, the fact that you don't look at the outside, but you look at the heart. Sometimes that's scary, Lord, but I just pray that we would, we would line our hearts up with you. We'd line our minds up with you. We'd use today as an opportunity to refocus to just set our mind and heart on you. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.